Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, uh, welcome to you all. Um, so my name is Akash Pown. Um, I uh, lead our work here on, on devolution, and I'm very pleased to be um, hosting this event. Um, and thank you to Mike Russell for coming to speak on the themes of Scotland, Brexit and devolution. Um, so that could cover quite a lot. Um, we scheduled this event um, a few months ago now, and, and when we thought, of course, that this week would be um, the, the final week of the Brexit process, at least in terms of the, the withdrawal process itself. Um, obviously, as it turns out, we're not exactly sure um, what this week will bring. Um, but I think that makes this event, if anything, all the more relevant. Um, and very pleased that you can all be with us today. Um, so Mike Russell is uh, Scotland's Cabinet Secretary for Government, Business and Constitutional Relations. And um, he's led the Scottish Government's uh, Brexit and, and constitutional strategy, so to speak, since uh, 2016. And has been a minister in uh, various positions uh, since, uh, or for most of the period since 2007, when the, the SNP um, first came into power in Edinburgh and he's member of the Scottish Parliament for Argyll and Butte. Um, and today is also by, uh, well, happy coincidence and uh, a bit of uh, planning on our part, the day also of the publication of a new Institute for Government report. Hopefully you've got a summary of it in front of you, most of you at least in this room, uh, not sure about next door who's there. Um, it's on the website too, the report's called Ministers Reflect on devolution and it's based on interviews we carried out with um, well 13 former Scottish and Welsh cabinet ministers um, all of which are published in full the interviews um, the interview transcripts and the report itself on our website um, and lots of interesting stuff in there that I hope you will um, you will make use of. Um, the report itself focuses on um, themes including the challenges and frustrations faced by Scottish and Welsh ministers um, that arise as a result of decisions taken at Westminster and what they've done to, uh, well, often try and defend the interests of the, of the devolved governments in negotiations with UK ministers. Um, and I suspect we may hear some reflections on that same theme uh, today. Um, and indeed, um, I know that we will do because, to coin a phrase, I thank the Minister for advance sight of his <laughs> statement. Um, so, uh, Mr. Russell will be speaking for around half an hour or so, um, and then we will have time for questions, uh, maybe a few from me, and then, uh, given the number in the room, definitely some uh, questions, I'm sure, from from many people here um, in the usual way. The event is, of course, as you'd expect, on the record. It's being filmed and uh, live streamed and so on. We're using the uh, twin hashtags, IFGDevo and IFGBrexit, um, if anyone wants to uh, tweet as well. Um, and uh, I am now very pleased to introduce Michael Russell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you uh, to the Institute and to you, Akash, for giving me the opportunity to address such a, a well-informed and uh, engaged audience at what is undoubtedly a, a historic time. Uh, let me start this by going back beyond Brexit, if it is possible for any of us to remember that far back. On the 31st of October 1956, during the Suez Crisis, Anthony Nutting, one of the stars of the post-war Conservative Party, resigned as a Minister of State at the Foreign Office. 
He did so because he felt he'd been put in an impossible position, having negotiated the final details of the UK's treaty with Nasser only two years before. The secret attempt by the British and French to abrogate that treaty in concert with Israel, and eventually by using force, was, he believed, mistaken and deceitful. However, his sense of honour and duty and the fact that there was a military action underway prevented him from explaining his actions in full until 1967. And even at that time, he faced opposition from the Cabinet Office when he published his memoir entitled No End of a Lesson. The title is, of course, taken from a poem about the Boer War by Rudyard Kipling. Let us, let us admit it fairly, as a business people should. We have had no end of a lesson. It will do us no end of good. Not on a single issue or in one direction or twain, but conclusively, comprehensively, and several times and again. There are many lessons to be learnt from the past, but it is perhaps to Suez that we should look for the most illuminating of them at this moment of political and constitutional crisis. One of those is that principle or loyalty are not without cost. Another is that lies and deception are bad foundations for making policy. But the third and most powerful is this, that imperial pretensions in post-imperial powers, hankerings after power and empire long gone, are bound to end in tears, particularly if the country involved refuses to learn any lesson at all from the experience. The Suez delusions are alive and all too obvious today. Brexit arises from an inflated and unrealistic view of Britain's place in the world, its role and influence. That delusion is egged on by politicians and some sections of the press, high and inhaling their own rhetoric, as the front of today's Daily Telegraph might tell you. It's even taken a biblical twist now. There's a persistent, all-embracing lack of candour from many, but notably the UK government, to the people of the UK, to our negotiating partners in the EU, and ultimately to ourselves. Last week's events made clear the extent of the UK's folly de grandeur. The Prime Minister was left outside the room as the country's fate was discussed by others. I noticed a journalist tweeting that the site had made him feel really no dealy. But how could it be otherwise once we had chosen to leave? But there are differences too. Serious and profound as the Suez crisis was, it was first of all a crisis of prestige and power. The Brexit crisis, made in Westminster by the Prime Minister, presents, in my view, a much greater risk to the country, our economy, our society, our culture, our people, and our politics. And its effect will be with us for generations, unless we take urgent action to avert it. One of the factors at play in the Brexit crisis, which was not present during the Suez crisis, is the existence of a different constitutional settlement on these islands. Although Westminster often tries to pretend that devolution doesn't really change anything, it actually changes a great deal. The Prime Minister gave away her flawed understanding of that fact early on in the Brexit crisis when she said that the UK entered the EU as one country and will leave as one country. But this is politically as well as geographically illiterate. There are four countries in this state and there are four parliaments or assemblies. 20 years of that constitutional order cannot be wished away or washed away by prime ministerial diktat. My thesis, and it's not one I'm alone in holding, as to give one example, Carbon Jones made the same substantive point when he spoke here last year, is that Brexit has proved too heavy for devolution to bear, and that therefore a new constitutional settlement will be required should Brexit take place. 
Of course, that is most graphically seen in Ireland. It was a crucial point made early on by the then Deputy First Minister for Northern Ireland, Martin McGuinness, and the continuing detrimental effect of Brexit on Ireland remains a huge worry, or should remain a huge worry, for all of us. Peace in Ireland and the benefits of the Good Friday Agreement are far too important to be sacrificed for fallacious and doomed attempts to recapture an imperial past. But I'm not going to dwell on the issue of the Irish border today, save to say that the Scottish Government will always do everything it can to promote peace and prosperity on that island and everywhere else. Let me, however, separate out the immediate issues of Brexit from the longer-term lessons. The first task I believe we should all have is to ensure that the Brexit process is halted, temporarily or permanently. It's therefore obvious that Article 50 must be extended, and our preference is for an extension to be one that would allow a further referendum on EU membership with remain on the ballot paper. Failing that, Article 50 should be revoked before the UK leaves the EU to prevent a no-deal Brexit. Only those steps can give us a chance of escaping from the disasters of Brexit with some semblance of order. Then we must take the necessary actions to create a new constitutional settlement for these islands. For Scotland, that means establishing a new relationship based on equality. And in the Scottish Government's consideration, only independence for Scotland can do that. Now, in order to consider why that is, I need to go back a little, and particularly to the Scottish independence referendum of 2014. A central issue in that referendum was Scotland's place in the EU. The Scottish Government believed then, as we do now, that the best future for Scotland is to be an independent member of the European Union. Scotland benefits hugely from being inside a single market of more than 500 million people. We value the rights EU membership offers to workers and the protections it's provided for our environment. We benefit from our freedom to travel, study and live in Europe, and also from the contribution that our fellow EU citizens have made to Scotland. For the Scottish Government, freedom of movement is not a trade-off to be endured in return for free trade, it is instead an additional and very welcome benefit. Indeed, it has been a vital part of the success we've had in recent years in reversing our historic population decline. If we lose freedom of movement, we could see the working population of Scotland beginning to fall once again. But at its heart, we don't see the EU in purely transactional terms, albeit that we benefit hugely from EU membership, but also in terms of fundamental values. We cherish those values. Freedom, democracy, the rule of law, equality, and respect for human dignity and human rights. And we will always encourage the EU and member states to live up to them. The former Irish ambassador to the EU in Britain, Bobby McDonough, recently wrote, the Irish people want to stay in the EU for the very reason Brexiteers want to leave. Control over our future, the diversity of our society, the value of sovereignty, which should be used confidently rather than hidden away and protected from the light. The idea of independent nations using and sharing sovereignty and expressing solidarity appeals to us. And many of us have, in our own lives, other reasons to be grateful for the peace and prosperity that membership of the EU has brought. We should talk more openly of these. In my own case, because my father was wounded on the beach at Dunkirk as a 19-year-old. That was a terrifying and life-changing experience for a 19-year-old lad from the Douce seaside town of Troon. I've never ceased to give thanks that it was the generosity of the victors towards the vanquished, the action at the heart of the EU project, which created a means to eliminate war from the continent of Europe and removed the threat of such awful things from me, from me as a 19-year-old 
or my son when he was 19. So it's no wonder that back in 2014, many who had similarly deep-seated reasons for wanting to preserve peace and prosperity on our continent were affected by what turned out to be a totally false smear spread by many of those politicians who now advocate leaving the EU that Scotland had to vote no to independence to stay in the EU. Indeed, they're on public record as doing so. For example, the Scottish Conservative leader Ruth Davidson said, I think it is disingenuous to say that no means out and yes means in, when actually the opposite is true. No means we stay in. We are members of the European Union. But now we see the truth. The imminent threat of leaving the EU comes not from independence, but from dependence, from remaining under the control of Westminster. Scotland's positive engagement with the EU is further demonstrated by the result of the Brexit referendum of 2016, when we voted decisively to stay in the EU. 62% to 38% of the population who voted. Every local authority area recorded a pro-Remain majority. In addition, the overwhelming majority of elected representatives in Scotland, MPs, MSPs and MEPs, were in favour of remaining. And in the UK general election of 2017, after the referendum, Scotland again returned a majority of MPs in favour of remaining in the EU. It is literally impossible for Scotland to have done any more to indicate its strong view that it wanted to remain. Yet the UK government could not have done any more to demonstrate that it just couldn't care less about that fact. Although Scotland voted to remain decisive, more decisive than the UK as a whole did to leave, it has perhaps remarkably been the Scottish government which has proposed compromise and the UK government which has pursued a dogmatic hard line. We took a deliberate decision to try and seek a negotiated way forward. So in December 2016, we published Scotland's Place in Europe, the first comprehensive proposal from any government in the UK to address these matters. Our evidence-based analysis showed clearly the least damaging option for leaving the EU, the optimum case, of course, being to remain, was for membership of the single market and the customs union. We demonstrated how that could be done for the UK as a whole and how it might be achieved for parts of the UK if that was an option that the Prime Minister was prepared to consider. These proposals represented a considerable compromise by the Scottish Government. But despite cross-party support from the Scottish Parliament, they were almost instantly dismissed by the Prime Minister. We also engaged fully, in good faith, with the processes set up by the UK Government to apparently, and I say apparently, involve and consult the devolved administrations in formulating the UK position for withdrawal. Indeed, the terms of reference to the JMC set up for this very purpose and agreed in October 2016 say that it would seek to agree a UK approach to and objectives for Article 50 negotiations and provide oversight of negotiations with the EU to ensure as far as possible that outcomes agreed by all four governments are secured from these negotiations. But the UK government has not met those commitments. I've been a member of that committee since it was established. It is my experience that at no point has the views of the Scottish Government or indeed the Welsh Government or the Northern Irish representatives been addressed in a way that has left us believing we have been listened to and would be taken account of. Still less has there been any recognition of the need to accommodate the pro-EU majority in our country 
nor the position of Scottish elected members and the repeated majority views of the Scottish Parliament, usually more than two-thirds to one-third on substantive Brexit issues. There has, in short, been no attempt to reach out and build a truly UK position in these negotiations. Now, we're not alone in noticing this. The world is now well aware of this Prime Minister's way of doing business. The fatal flaw in her position has been the absolute refusal to listen to other points of view and the complete failure to devise with others acceptable ways forward that could command majority support. This would be hard enough to bear at any time, but there is more evidence that underlines the need for profound change, because it is also clear that the UK government is intent on undermining the existing devolution settlement and rolling back to an even more centralised state. Devolution, as I've said, in its current form has not been able to bear the weight of the Brexit process. But rather than mitigating that situation, more weight has been piled on it by the Prime Minister herself. In her Conservative Party conference speech of March 2017, the Prime Minister said, As we bring powers and control back to the United Kingdom, we must ensure that the right powers sit at the right level to ensure our United Kingdom can operate effectively and in the interest of all its citizens, including people in Scotland. We must also ensure that the UK, which emerges from the EU, is able to strike the best possible trade deals internationally. In short, we must avoid any unintended consequences for the coherence and integrity of a devolved United Kingdom as a result of our leaving the EU. Translated, the meaning is clear. The UK government would use Brexit to change the devolved settlement in the way it sought fit in order to deliver its, its version of Brexit. International trade deals were to take precedent over the constitutional settlement. And the UK government would itself define what these unintended consequences might be and how they would be resolved. Now, the results have been there for all to see. The EU Withdrawal Act in 2018, imposed against the express wish of the Scottish Parliament, gave UK ministers a power to restrict the Scottish Parliament's competences unilaterally and without agreement. For the first time in the 20-year history of devolution, the UK government legislated on devolved matters without the consent of the Scottish Parliament. The Sewell Convention, the legislative consent provisions which are fundamental to the protection of the Scottish Parliament, was deliberately broken, despite repeated promises that it wouldn't be. And then the UK government took steps that prevented an act of the Scottish Parliament passed by an overwhelming majority becoming law, challenging it in the Supreme Court and then, without waiting for the court's verdict, changing UK legislation in order to stop it ever coming into force. So what now? To go back to 2014, Scotland voted to stay in the United Kingdom, a United Kingdom that was part of the EU, but also a United Kingdom that was characterised repeatedly during the campaign as a union of equals. A United Kingdom in which we were assured Scotland's Parliament would be entrenched and our decision-making rights protected. A United Kingdom which had turned over a new leaf in order that collaborative working between governments with mutual respect would become the norm. A United Kingdom, as Gordon Brown put it, as close to a federal state as you can be in a country where one nation is 85% of the population. But it didn't happen. And now the UK is set on leaving the EU against the clear will of the people of Scotland. That is such an enormous change that it would by itself justify returning to the people of Scotland to reconsider the issue of independence. 
And we did set out these exact circumstances very clearly in our manifesto for the 2016 Scottish general election. I and 62 other SNP MSPs, by far the largest group in the Scottish Parliament, were elected on a platform which very clearly stated that we believe that the Scottish Parliament should have the right to hold another referendum if there is a clear and sustained evidence that independence has become the preferred option of a majority of the Scottish people, or if there is a significant and material change in the circumstances that prevailed in 2014, such as Scotland being taken out of the EU against our will. So no matter what the Prime Minister thinks, we have a cast-iron mandate for a further independence referendum on those grounds alone. A mandate supported by a majority in the Scottish Parliament, as the Scottish Greens hold the same view, and by a majority of Scottish MPs at Westminster. Those are incontrovertible democratic facts. Thus it is that Brexit has not only created the context for reconsideration of independence, but by the means of its delivery, it has also created the necessity for such a change. It is now beyond doubt that there can be no guarantee at any time and on any issue, even on any devolved issue, that Scottish views or the actions of Scottish institutions are safe or respected within the current United Kingdom. The 20-year consensus which has underpinned devolution is breaking down. Or to be more accurate, it is being broken down by the UK government itself. Let me go back to the Prime Minister's speech to the Scottish Conservative Party conference in March 2017. She said, as the government serving the whole United Kingdom, formed in a parliament drawn from the whole United Kingdom, the UK government exercises a responsibility on behalf of the whole UK that transcends party politics and encompasses all aspects of our national life. We must unashamedly assert this fundamental responsibility on our part. And in a speech on the 21st of February this year, ironically to celebrate 20 years of devolution, the Secretary of State for Scotland echoed the Prime Minister's words and said, I believe she was right to assert that the UK government's interests in all parts of people's lives in Scotland. All parts of people's lives. Not those parts that are covered by reserved competencies, but all parts. These speeches set out a position that is without doubt hostile to devolution. For let us be clear, the UK government is not responsible for all matters across the UK. It has no power of oversight or supervision of the devolved governments in their devolved functions. There is no hierarchy of governments, but only a hierarchy of parliaments. Governmental competence in devolved matters is exclusively for the devolved administrations. That the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State of Scotland do not believe that to be the case is a matter of concern about both their understanding of the devolution settlement and their intentions for the future. That is why, for example, on a governmental level, the Scottish Government is refusing to have any further truck with the UK Government's invented concept of the supposed needs of some non-existent UK single market, which can be used to ride roughshod over devolved responsibilities. But UK Ministers are not alone in these views. Of course, recently witnessed Conservative MPs from Scottish constituencies arguing the New Towns Fund should not be passed to the Scottish Government as a devolved matter, which it is, but runs centrally by the UK Government. And despite their protestations to the contrary, driven by internal Scottish electoral imperatives, the Scottish Conservatives in the Scottish Parliament are aiding and abetting this process, arguing, for example, that neither the Scottish Government nor the Scottish Parliament should have a role in international trade arrangements, even where those directly concern devolved matters. 
So whilst the nature of modern trade agreements means that there is an ever-increasing impact on devolved areas of competence, the Scottish Tories, Canute-like, demand that the tide retreats and that Westminster should always rule supreme. Finally, on this matter, there is no evidence that this has gone beyond words into actions. The arrangements between the UK government and the DUP for additional funding for Northern Ireland have shown that the rules on funding devolved administrations carefully set out in the Treasury's statement on funding policy do not apply if the UK government decides that they do not apply. Though, if I may say in an aside, the issue of payments to the DUP and their failure to carry out what they agreed is also presaged in another Kipling poem, which finishes with these words. We never pay anyone, Dane Geld, no matter how trifling the cost, for the end of that game is oppression and shame, and the nation that plays it is lost. But I digress, for perhaps the most striking example of all is the fate of Scotland's, Scottish Parliament's continuity bill, designed to provide a necessary alternative and specifically Scottish-focused addition to the UK withdrawal bill. Referring to the actions of the UK government on this matter, Lord Reid, Deputy President of the Supreme Court, recently noted that it had proved that it is legally possible for the UK government to react to the passage of a bill in the Scottish Parliament by making a reference to the court and then persuading the UK Parliament to amend the Scotland Act so as to render the bill invalid. In other words, to change the law to allow them to win a case that they could not have won if the existing law had been in force. I leave you to judge whether that is a fair and acceptable constitutional system or the actions of a reputable government. But I would contend that all this, the Brexit process and what the Brexit process has revealed, demonstrates the very fragile position of Scottish autonomy in decision-making. And moreover, added to the broken promises of the 2014 referendum, in particular that wonderful injunction, lead not leave, which is now a hollow joke, they also demonstrate that the UK state and the current constitutional system is broken. Now, the particular circumstances of this time are unique, but they have arisen at least in part from the long-established doctrine of unlimited parliamentary sovereignty. That concept is completely out of step with Scottish constitutional thinking, and indeed all modern, in the broadest sense of the term, governance. Scottish democracy and Scottish institutions will remain under attack and of declining influence, whilst we continue to have to juggle our democratic traditions and ambitions in order to submit to such an ancient and unacceptable doctrine which is not adapted in the slightest to the reality of 20 years of devolution. The practice of government in Whitehall reflects this fundamental view. The Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee of the Commons concluded in July last year, it is clear from the evidence to this inquiry that Whitehall still operates extensively on the basis of a structure and culture which takes little account of the realities of devolution in the UK. This is inimical to the principles of devolution and good governance. And as a final illustration of that point, let me contrast the position of Scotland within the United Kingdom with that of Ireland within the EU. Instead of being ignored, bypassed and undermined, Ireland's interests and views are protected and respected by the EU. Instead of occasional warm words instantly repudiated by cold actions, Ireland has a guarantee of a system of treaties and laws that underpins their place in EU decision-making. Trust underpinned by law and an adjudication and enforcement system, as the Taoiseach put it at a recent British-Irish Council. There are 
many arguments for Scottish independence, economic, cultural and social, pragmatic based on matters such as immigration, visionary based on Scotland taking its place in Europe and the world. These are all powerful arguments. Many of them were explored in 2014 and will be explored again. But the new element of Brexit that has entered this equation in the last two and a half years has made it more obvious than ever that the only way of securing a modern state, self-governing and protective of its own interests, while participating in the wider world, is to choose independence. As someone born in that hotbed of Scottish nationalism, Bromley, whose grandfather's favourite boasted as a young man in his native village of Abbots Langley near Watford, he had bowled out W.G. Grace, I am in no doubt that the social union will continue and underpin whatever eventual relationship Scotland has with the rest of the UK. We're always going to work together cooperatively and collaboratively. We're going to have to find ways of discussing and agreeing matters of mutual interest and concern. That imperative has driven everything the Scottish Government has done by way of making constructive proposals for improving the governance of the United Kingdom in key areas. For example, as I said on international trade, we published detailed proposals last year to recognise the role of devolved administrations and legislatures. We proposed a statutory requirement that new trade agreements which affect devolved issues must be agreed by the Scottish Government and the Scottish Parliament, including the negotiating mandate. I mentioned earlier the importance of immigration. We produced similarly detailed proposals with abundant evidence to allow Scotland to address this issue within the context of the United Kingdom. We have also initiated a campaign to encourage EU nationals to stay in Scotland. And the Scottish Government will continue to produce constructive and considered proposals to improve and enhance the governance of the United Kingdom. A review of intergovernmental relations is going on between the administrations of these islands. We welcome that. We'll engage constructively with the excellent ideas and thoughts coming from, amongst others, our colleagues in Wales. And I want to pay a particular tribute to our Welsh colleagues for all the positive work we've been able to do together over the last two and a half years. I hope we will continue to do that work, mindful of the fact we have much in common, even if we share a different analysis of the necessary final outcome. We will bring forward new proposals on the reform of devolution shortly as part of the IGR process. We'd welcome some from the UK government. They will include new statutory foundations for the relationships, decision-making, dispute avoidance, international actions, and they will suggest a new approach to arbitration. There is a need to involve all the nations, not just the DUP of these islands as equals, shaping the approach to these negotiations in sharp contrast to the approach of the last few years. From a devolved perspective, I think it is clear that no progress could be made without a firm statutory basis for the IGR, entrenched and protected and subject to judicial oversight. The doctrine of unlimited parliamentary sovereignty needs to be adjusted to take into account the realities of devolution, as it was adjusted to take into account the realities of EU membership. The Sewell Convention needs to be properly set out in law, well beyond the current symbolic provisions, and again should be subject to judicial oversight. And it's worth noting that the proposals to get that convention working again have been made to the UK government on a number of occasions over the past year, but haven't even been responded to. And in addition, though the governance of England is not a matter for me, perhaps the way that Brexit has exposed very cruelly current UK institutions provides an opportunity for England itself to examine how power can be more evenly distributed geographically and organisationally. Reform is possible, desirable, and indeed essential, given the lessons of Brexit. 
it would provide a firmer basis for the proper governance of the UK, whether or not Brexit takes place, and whatever Scotland's eventual position. But such a radical approach would also require imagination, commitment, the rejection of nostalgia, and some political courage. And there's the rub. For I see nothing in the current UK government or its potential successors that suggests that such things would ever be a priority. Indeed, refusing to allow such issues to be discussed or resolved by democratic means is a continuing and persistent knee-jerk reaction of all the Westminster-based parties, both in London and Edinburgh, with the current Foreign Secretary adding just last week that, of course, such a process would be rejected. The Scottish Government is always ready to discuss and debate such ideas, but if it cannot get a hearing or any response apart from contempt, then it must draw an inevitable conclusion. That either Scotland, in the words of the First Minister, is prepared just to grin and bear it as Brexit trashes our country, or it is prepared to find the constitutional means to move forward into a modern state of normality. Much has been made in recent weeks of that definition of insanity, which says it is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. For Scotland, believing that after Brexit things will revert to some pre-Brexit ideal state, which never existed, and that the promises made and broken again and again will in some way finally be honoured, would fit that definition. It would also fly in the face of actual experience, not just in the past three years or five years, but over a much longer period. This debate, after all, has been going on for almost a century. Something better is possible, and we must, out of duty to our fellow citizens, secure it. That something is ever more clearly independence, and it's time, beyond time, to make it real. I started this lecture with Suez, Anthony Nutting, and Rudyard Kipling. Let me finish by completing that story. Anthony Nutting paid a heavy price for his political courage, both his resignation on principle from Eden's government and his decade-long silence on the reasons for it. Despite being, in the private assurance from Macmillan, someone likely to lead the Conservative Party, he was forced out of his parliamentary seat shortly afterwards by a hostile constituency association, and he never returned to elected office, trying for Parliament only once more. He recalled later in his memoir that he felt bereft of friends, a castaway on a sea of anger and recrimination, an object of distrust, torn between loyalty to principle and loyalty to friends and associates. There are, I think, MPs in the Commons today who will be feeling the same way and who may well pay the same price for their stance on Brexit. And Kipling's poem includes these words towards the end. It was our fault and a very great fault, and now we must turn it to use. But 100 years after he wrote them, and more than 60 years after Suez, we have, alas, turned none of these lessons to good use. There are lessons to be learned about international humiliation, certainly, but there are also ones closer to home, lessons about the nature of UK institutions and the culture of governance in the United Kingdom. Crucially, we must also learn the le lessons, the new lessons in the new constitutional settlement about relationships in these islands and the need for mutual respect between equal nations. In order to secure equality, we must establish a rules-based system to govern role and relationships. Trust, yes, but underpinned by law. The norm for that is independence for both parties. Such independence, based on mutual respect and a desire for cooperation, will benefit all of us. The evidence shows that this is the only solution that will now work. The political and democratic need for it 
is blindingly obvious. The model for establishing it is crystal clear. The issue, therefore, for many of us is not if or why, but when. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that uh, fascinating and, and challenging speech. I'm sure there's going to be uh, plenty of points that people want to uh, question you about or, or, or maybe challenge you on. Um, I've just got a couple of questions uh, before I do open it up to the floor. So on one specific uh, issue you raised about the current intergovernmental um, interaction and then on a couple of the kind of bigger constitutional points. So. Um, you mentioned, I think, or you, you used the phrase that the, the Scottish government would, uh, would refuse to have any further dealing with the, or further truck with the, with the concept of the UK single market, mm. um, which I thought was interesting given that um, my understanding was that the, the ongoing discussions around developing post-Brexit common frameworks uh, were, were founded or were, were taking place on the basis of a a shared agreement that protecting the functioning of the UK market was one reason why you might need new frameworks. So I just wondered if something well, had changed in that respect. I think we've failed in the last two years to define what the UK single market is. So there's no definition of what the UK single market is. It's a very misleading term. It sort of implies that there's a EU single market, which of course was negotiated over many years, is well governed by rules and regulations, in which diversity is a key issue as well as conformity. And in some way there would be an imposed UK single market. Because remember, the definition, the only definition that would count in this would be a UK government definition. No matter what Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland thought, mm. that would be the definition that counts. So, uh, you know, our view is that they have failed to establish a case for this UK single market. There is a case for, of course, the frameworks to operate. Uh, we've agreed with that. As long as frameworks are not imposed in any area, we will negotiate with them. And that is perhaps the one small success of this whole process. That mm. There has been no imposition because we made it clear, very clear, that we wouldn't cooperate if there was imposition. Mm. And you know, those frameworks are underpinned by devolution by the devolved settlement. The devolved settlement allows for diversity. I think it was, I think it was Damien Green who said when he was in the, in the role that David Liddington has now, that they needed to be, you know, it, it needed to be possible to have the same treatment of a jam maker in Dundee as a jam maker in Durham. I think that's broadly what he was saying. Obviously, pretty concerned for the jam makers of the world. The reality of the situation is devolution allows you to make different decisions on that. You could, for example, decide in Dundee that there was too much sugar in the jam, and therefore in Dundee you wouldn't sell jam that had that much sugar. That isn't, you're entitled to do so. But you, know, you would just rule that out on the present negotiation and discussion of what the UK single market is. That would be against the principles of devolution. So it seems to me that we've gone through the, the process of trying to resolve this issue and it cannot be resolved. So either the UK imposes uh, the issue of the UK single market or we agree that we'll be bound by the devolved settlements and the devolved settlements as they operate at the present time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so can I take it from that because that the... Um the negotiations around um, developing frameworks are not, uh, are not progressing particularly no, well at present. Well, I, I gave evidence to the Scottish Parliament's Finance and Constitution Committee some time ago, and they have a report out today about this. And, and I've made it clear we are happy to continue those discussions about frameworks. They have actually made a lot of progress, and I pay tribute to the officials involved in them. But they've got a bit sidetracked in the last four months because mm. everything has been focused on the Brexit deal. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary to think 
that this was agreed for over four months ago. There's been no progress on anything in the last four months. There was limited progress mm -hmm. up until then, but no progress now because everything has been absorbed by that. Mm -hmm. Meetings of the JMC have been cancelled. We've had, I think, one discussion of frameworks since then. But officials are pursuing it. They're, it is now moving. There's a, a new report, I think, due out on it soon. It's now moving uh, to stakeholder consultation. We have said since the beginning mm -hmm. we are happy to negotiate frameworks, and they are being negotiated. But we're also not going to be distracted by chimeras, and there's a chimera in the UK, the so-called UK single market, uh, which you know, we just have to, have to say, this emperor has no clothes. Mm -hmm. And as for the, uh, the wider review um, that is uh, supposed to be going on of the intergovernmental relationship and the joint ministerial committee and, and principles underpinning that relationship, I mean, that's something that certainly we at the Institute for Government have are quite interested in um, and, and, and think is, in principle, a, a good thing, but there's been precious little uh, public, um, public information about any progress in that regard. So I just wonder if there's, uh, from your Precious little private information it, too. Has anything to happened in that? No, I mean, you know, Wales published proposals last year. Um, we published material in our first Scotland's Place in Europe about potential changes to devolution. Um, <coughs> I think the agreement to have a I, uh, intergovernmental review is almost a year old. Uh, the, it has been moving at a Westminster snail's pace. I think it was and first it committed needs, to in 2014, actually. Uh, it, well, the, remember the JMC plenary didn't meet from the end of from 2014 to 2016, yeah. which says something about the the JMC process that you can have the, the keystone of it not actually meeting for two years. But there was an agreement about a year ago that we would have a formal intergovernmental review. Uh, we have had no proposals from the UK. Uh, the official discussion continues. We really need, if, if the UK is serious about it, it needs to get serious about it. But again, it is the Brexit black hole. Everything is sucked into the Brexit black hole. Mm. And I suspect, you know, the last thing they're thinking about is this, though that's rather telling in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that uh, is quite possibly the best explanation. Um, and so as far as Brexit is concerned, um, you, you of course reiterated the, the, the Scottish Government and the, and the SNP position um, that you would like to see a further referendum on EU membership with Remain of course on the ballot paper. Um, and well, we'll see what happens this week. It's, it's possible that um, that does start to look like a, a, a feasible outcome. Um, but if it were to happen, it is, of course, possible that we'd have a similar outcome to 2016 in the sense that Scotland might vote one way, most probably remain, uh, whereas the, the UK majority, because of the weight of population in England and so on, might you know, deliver a, a majority again for leave. So, I mean, would the Scottish government um, accept another referendum on the same terms, effectively, you know, because we, with with no special uh, requirements for, for majorities in each nation or anything well, like I, that. Well, I've met, you know, we did propose <coughs> at the time of the um, original bill on the referendum, there should be a four-country vote. Yes, I recall um, that, you know, yeah. I, I can certainly see discussion of that as arrangements of the referendum moving forward. There would have to be some such discussions. But, you know, we, we, thought, we thought long and hard about this. I had detailed conversations with some of the people involved in the second referendum movement. 
And it seemed to us that we should reserve our position on that, undoubtedly, make it clear that that was a concern and a worry of ours. But if that were to stop us supporting a second referendum, that would be the wrong thing to do, given the, the threat of Brexit. You know, Brexit is, in entire UK terms, an existential threat, but in Scotland, it's, you know, it is even, if it were possible, to be worse, worse than that. The Prime Minister's deal, for example, you know, in ending freedom of movement creates enormous difficulties for almost every part of Scotland. Particularly, as you said, I represent Argyll and Butte, Highlands and Islands of Scotland you know, is not reproducing itself. There's a, a no natural population growth. Indeed, there's natural population decline. So the only way you can maintain a working population in the Highlands and Islands is by uh, migration, and freedom of movement is ideally suited to that. So in the next 10 years, a fifth of the working population of the Highlands Islands of Scotland are going to retire. Demography takes its effect. How do you replace those 80,000 people if you have not got active migration into the area? And it is freedom of movement is the best way to do it. That, that is you know, an incontrovertible fact. Now, I've put that to three successive UK immigration ministers. One didn't respond. One told me that they heard the same issues in their constituency about the construction industry. Um, and the third one, I think, went on to talk about uh, not granting the people of Lincolnshire any powers. You know, it, it, was, it was contempt. But that's the reality of a fifth of the UK's landmass in terms of population and migration. So we have to say any Brexit of that nature would be disastrous. And you know, if you're then going to have a we proposed in our original paper, single market and customs union membership, which would have preserved freedom of movement. You know, that would have been tolerable, but things have moved on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so finally for me, um, from one potential second referendum to another, um, I mean, you, you've made the case, and again, this is, you know, reflecting position Scottish government has, has taken um, for some time, that you already have a, a cast iron mandate in your phrase for a second referendum on uh, on independence, and, and I understand the the arguments that you made, and you know people may take different views. But what I wanted to ask you was less about what you see as the mandate, um, and more about the the legal position, because of course Nicola Sturgeon made the case that there was a mandate and there should be a second referendum almost exactly two years ago now, just when the, the Article 50 notification was, was first made. And of course, at that time, the UK government, the Prime Minister said, well, now is not the time, and we refuse to consider the, the Section 30 order, the, the temporary devolution of power, to hold a second referendum. Um, if that were to happen again, if, if uh, the, the Prime Minister or maybe her successor uh, took that position, um, what's your ultimate plan B? Well, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail. The, the First Minister will, at the moment of her choosing, uh, give more detail than I can give. But I just want to reflect on the words you've used. You know, first of all, I, I find it insulting to be told uh, by anybody, let alone the Prime Minister, that now is not the time, this is not the time, and you do not have permission to do something. And the people of Scotland are mature enough in their democracy to be able to choose whether they do something or not. But equally, we have also always said, and will continue to say, that we will do this constitutionally. Mm. You know, we're not going to do it in any other way. Uh, it is vital that we do this constitutionally. Now, I suppose you know, the Prime Minister, basing her argument on the fact that she doesn't think there's any support for this, I think she should look at opinion polls. I think she should look at what the people of Scotland are actually doing in the ballot box and realise that that is no longer the case. 
there is support for, for this and there is support for independence. What I suspect motivates the Prime Minister at the moment is not lack of support for a referendum, it is the fact that a referendum might well be lost by her argument mm. and therefore she does not want to, to have it. So I think in these circumstances a democracy should prevail. It is extraordinary, and I've tried to make this clear in what I said, it is an extraordinary set of circumstances in which Scotland votes not to leave. <clears throat> the majority of its parliamentary representatives at all levels, the overwhelming majority, are against leaving. They remain against leaving. And yet apparently the people of Scotland are not even to be allowed to exercise that choice. That is, if you were to read that about somewhere that was not in these islands, you would, I'm sure, almost everybody in this room would be shocked by it. And they would say that situation cannot last. So to, to, to step aside from any preconceptions about the uh, you know, immutable nature of the UK unwritten constitution, just imagine the reaction to those circumstances were they to apply elsewhere. Okay, thank you. Right, questions from the floor. We'll take, a, we'll take two or three in, uh, in a group. So I see Vernon Bogdanor and then, uh, yes, gentlemen at the back next. Um, and then we'll get, come to a second round after that. Um, I very much agree with Mike Russell's point that the whole Brexit process makes a case for a constitution. Indeed, I've just written a book to that effect called Beyond Brexit. But I want to ask him about two matters of SNP policy. If you became independent, would you have your own currency? And if so, would that mean higher interest rates to keep money in Scotland? Or would you continue to use a pound, in which case your monetary policy would still be dependent on London, or would you join the euro in which, as with Ireland, your monetary and fiscal policy would be decided in Brussels, and you'd have to reduce your budget deficit to 3%. I think it's now over 7%, so how would you do that? And my second question, it was very brief, is that in 1975, when the rest of England, when Britain wants to stay in the EU, the SNP was the only party in Scotland advocating a no vote. In 2016, when Britain wanted to leave, the SNP was the only party in Scotland advocating a Remain vote. Now, when did the SNP change its policy and why? Um, <laughs> Should we take one more question? Well, no, no, let me, let me address okay. those, because th there's a complicated set of questions, and I want to remember them all. Okay. It's not true to say that in 2016, we're the only party advocating to Remain. But I, I can, on the second question, absolve myself of responsibility. I joined the SNP in 1974, and although some would regard me in this audience as being you know, a, a, a hack and apparatchik of the SNP, in 1975, I defied the party instruction and voted for membership of the EU, and I've been consistent in that matter ever since. The other difference there, of course, being that the SNP's advice to vote against was not heeded, except in two parts of Scotland, in uh, Shetland, I think, and in the Western Isles. Uh, the rest of Scotland ignored the SNP's advice. This time, the whole of Scotland accepted the SNP's advice, which tells you something about the change that has taken place. On currency, I'm not going to go into detailed policy because at the conference, spin conference this year, we will debate the Growth Commission report, which has a number of recommendations in that. Uh, we will move forward in that. What I'm going to say is this. I, I, I enjoy this debate on currency for a particular reason. In 2014, we were told that we could not have the pound. We would have to have our own currency. Now many commentators tell us that we cannot have our own currency, nor can we have the pound. This does indicate a dilemma for a newly, a newly independent state, one that has never occurred for any other independent state in the world. Every other independent state in the world has been able to have a currency. 
But apparently Scotland is so bemused and befuddled by this thing that it won't happen. You know, I, I think this is, this is going to become one of those questions which in time is seen to be just you know, of its time, of a 2014 time. Um, and I look forward to the debate at the conference, a resolution of this matter, which is clear in the documentation, but I'm not going to read it out, we're here all the time, and we will have a currency and be able to honour all our commitments, mortgages, loans, pay dividends, pay pensions, because that's what happens in a mature country. Okay, so we have one more person lined up, and any more hands for questions after that? Yes, okay, so the two gentlemen sitting near each other at the back there. Graham Carey, House Commons Library. Um, one of the major parts of the process in the withdrawal bill was obviously the decision by the Scottish Parliament not to give legislative consent. Um, a number of other Brexit bills are, of course, proceeding through the Commons and the Lords at the moment. Um, the most recent, in respect of which I think, was the immigration bill where we've had a, another memorandum. So is it the intention of the, the Scottish Government to bring forward debates on legislative consent on those bills, or will it, or will it refrain from doing so? Oh, well, our pr procedure is that we will bring forward a legislative consent memorandum but we won't bring forward a legislative consent motion. This is d delving into the arcane mysteries of the Scottish uh, Parliament's standing orders. But as a founding um, business manager of the Parliament, I'm mm. always happy to do so. Uh, we, will, um, we have made one exception. You're right to say that we've said that we will not pass legislative consent motions for Brexit um, a legislation. That's quite a generous thing on our part because we're prepared to pass them for other things, even though the UK government broke the system by operating it in the way that it did. But we made only one exception, and that was on the health uh, uh, bill, where there was a question that it might have affected provision of healthcare services to UK residents uh, living in Europe, and as a result of which we felt it wasn't fair to do anything else. But in these circumstances, we will bring forward memoranda, but we won't bring forward legislative consent resolutions. Now, it is possible for the opposition parties, particularly for the Tories, to bring forward their own memorandum and resolution. They chose not to do so in the withdrawal bill, which was quite interesting. But they could do so at any time. I mean, they'd have to put a bit of work into it, but they could draft a memorandum and bring forward a resolution. Then the Parliament would have its say. Um, what we've done with no resolution and no consent is given. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and the, the gentleman there. Okay, thank you. Hello, uh, Sean Spears from Green Alliance and Green UK, which is a coalition of 14 environmental groups working on Brexit. We work closely with Scottish Environment Link on that. And, and the environment is one of those areas which uh, Brexit has sort of thrown up the importance of the devolution settlement because 80% of environmental laws are decided in Brussels and I don't think anybody really anticipated those powers returning to the UK. You, you've, you've made a, a powerful case for the ineptitude and tone deafness, et cetera, et cetera, of the UK government and its, its unwillingness and failure to deal with the Scottish government. Uh, I, I wonder two things. One is whether you think there's been any ways you wish the Scottish government had behaved differently. <laughs> it's all the blame, 100% of the blame on the UK government, um, which, which I could kind of believe. I think Brexit's been a difficult thing for the UK state to deal with. But the other question is whether there are any reservoirs of goodwill which could enable co-owned, co-designed co institutions to take on some of the duties currently held in the European Union, or if the only solution is uh, independence of Scotland. Because, of course, one of the things that UK politicians and civil servants say is, oh, the Scottish government aren't interested in finding solutions, they're just betting everything on independence. Well, uh, strangely enough, I've heard that criticism. Um, 
I have to say that our actions prove it otherwise. I mean, you know, I, I, I bear the scars of two and a half years of, of trying to negotiate with the UK government. Uh, you know, and we've tried consistently and hard, and we've published material, we've put forward compromises. Uh, you know, I think I could write you the story, but I think the record shows that we have done, as Wales has done, everything we could possibly do to get a compromise. But it's a word that's not in the Prime Minister's vocabulary. In terms of, I just want to reflect on the environment side. I'm an ex-environment minister. I am particularly concerned by withdrawal from the EU on environmental matters. That's why in our continuity bill, we established the keeping pace power, one of the main reasons for the keeping pace power, which was something that was rejected by the UK in its withdrawal bill. Um, I think we are now considering what to do with the rest of the bill. A lot of it survived the Supreme Court, uh, and the keeping pace powers did. Uh, but we have to decide what we do, how we bring them back into the chamber. But I think there will be a widespread agreement by the parties in the Scottish Parliament, probably not the Conservatives, but everybody else, that we should bring back some form of keeping pace power and that it should apply to environmental matters. There's also, as you know, a review of environmental governance taking place. So, but you know, the threat of Brexit is particularly severe for environmental legislation. That served Scotland well. In terms of what we have done, I mean, you know, there will undoubtedly be people will pour over this for generations to come. You know, many, many books. I, you know, as a Scottish historian, a cultural historian, there was, people used to say of the island of St Kilda that it was the smallest spot on earth that had the most written about it. I'm absolutely certain that you know, Brexit will be the, the smallest idea that has the most written about it for a long time to come. And people will be able to judge then by our actions. But you know, I think we've behaved very fairly, very openly, very transparently, and I think that's really been important. We've reported on what we've done, we've, we've written about what we've done, we've given evidence to the Scottish Parliament, I've given evidence to Westminster on what we've done, and others will have to judge in the end. Mm -hmm. Okay, any more questions? And if there's anyone next door, I'm not sure if, how full that room is, but if you want to ask any questions, stick your head in. And uh, yeah, great, see a couple of people at the front here, so. Yeah, and then. Thank you, Michael Jay from the House of Lords. Uh, I, thank you very much. I greatly enjoyed that uh, talk. W.G. Grace's views on devolutions are really discussed by me, say so. Um, what I wanted to ask you, you talked about the sort of lack of trust, really, between, uh, I suppose, Edinburgh and, uh, uh, and London in particular. What sort of structures after devolution would you like to see between, which would in, ensure that there was trust and was a, a constructive grown-up discussion between Edinburgh, London, Cardiff and Belfast on the issues which were going to have to be discussed after, after Brexit? I think the key issue in here is the quote I used or the, the description I used from what the Taoiseach said. I think there's a different understanding of trust in the European parliaments and the UK parliaments. And I am much keener on the, the European understanding of this. Trust works when it is underpinned by law. And you know, the, the relationship between the 27 is a trusting relationship because you can enforce it. There are norms of behavior that can be enforced. There are rules that can be enforced. The UK government's view of trust is it's some sort of you know, all-embracing all friendship. You just say, oh, we trust you. That doesn't work. And, and that's the problem with the unwritten UK constitution and how it operates. You know, in the end, trust comes down to the fact that either you know, there is an acceptance of what each of us say or somebody imposes their will. And that, in this relationship, has to be the UK because they can change the rules. The, the dispute resolution mechanism in 
devolution is, in the end, the UK government will decide. So I want to see a relationship based on the rule of law, a trusting relationship. Now, it seems to me, if that is your objective, you know, it is conceivable, uh, and I use the word, words judicial oversight several times, it is conceivable that you could build that into devolution, but I believe there is no will to do so, mm. nor any intention. Uh, nor, and I think it would fracture you know, the, the political parties of the UK to, to do that. So it seems to me that the obvious thing is there's only one other way you can do that, which is to have an independent relationship based on trust uh, and based then on the rule of law, an agreement between states. And that seems to be the best way to do it. Uh, and I don't see another way of doing it. Okay, yeah, uh, right, last two questions. Should we just take them together mm. and then we'll be right up to two o'clock? Mm -hmm. so. Michael Sturrock, um, it was suggested recently by University of Strathclyde constitutional law professor Alison McCaig and indeed another uh, constitutional law professor, I can't remember which, um, that it was within the constitutional remit of the Scottish Government to have at least an advisory second referendum. Would the Scottish Government consider that as a course of action just in the, in the near future as a kind of suggestion of de democratic mandate? Mm -hmm. Okay, and then, yeah, finally. Thanks, uh, John Lloyd, I'm a journalist. Uh, you, you were uh, you invoked the 500 million people in, in the European Union as, as uh, a large market. Uh, as you know well, you're by far your largest market the Scottish, for Scottish exports is, is the rest of the UK. Would you be insouciant about having a hard border between Scotland and the rest of the UK? Do you think that the goodwill which you've so uh, enthusiastically conjured up between the two nations after their two separate states would mean that there was not a hard border. Uh, what are your uh, thoughts about a hard border and the effect on Scots exports? Yeah, John, I think in this one, you know, the UK cannot, if I may put it this way, eat its cake and have it. You know? The reality is the UK is seeking, with nations of the EU, a free and open trading relationship. I want an independent Scotland to be a member of the EU Ergo, there will be a free and open trading relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK in those circumstances. If there is a hard border of any description, it will be everywhere for the UK in, with the EU or nowhere. So I, I'm very relaxed about it. Uh, I think that the will is there on both sides in the EU, it's all three sides, UK and, and Scotland, to have that type of relationship. And if it's not there, the UK should say so. But the second point to argue is this one. There is a need, I, I'm not sure I agree with the statistics as, as I presented, but even if you accepted those statistics, you would then look at Ireland, uh, you're joining the EU in 74, and the way in which it found it not only necessary, but welcome to change its dependence upon trade with the UK. And it has done so dramatically. I'm happy to provide you with the figures. It has done so absolutely dramatically. The, the dependence, which was into the 60 to 70 percent in 74, has dropped to, I think, 20 percent and is still dropping. And that's positive because it has widened and increased its, its ability to trade right across the world. And that is a positive thing and would be a positive thing for Scotland. So I think both of those answers uh, would indicate I have no desire to do anything other than to make sure there are free and open borders. And it is quite clear that if that is the view of the, 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 the rest of the UK as well, then we would be happy together on that. Um, let me address this issue, your advisory referenda. I held constitutional responsibility in 2009-10 in the Scottish Government as well. I'm familiar with the argument. The Scottish Government has always believed that the, 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 there is a necessity 
to operate within the Constitution, the Scotland Act is clear on that matter, and I don't see us departing from that. If you were to ask about advisory referenda, uh, too, I would say, you know, look around you with the results of advisory <laughs> referenda. You know, it doesn't seem a sensible idea. So if you're going to do anything, do it properly. Okay, excellent place on which to end. And uh, just please join me in thanking Thank Mike you. Russell for his fascinating contribution.